so a couple of months after we had just moved to Colorado from Alabama, I was hanging out with a new friend that I had made, and this friend was not a Christian. He wasn't a believer, um, but we're still good friends, and you know, he knew, he knows that I'm a pastor, and so every now and then whenever we're hanging out, he'll just ask me some questions about the faith, and one day he walked up to me and he said, I, I have a bit of a different question for you this morning, so, something you might not be expecting. I said, oh, okay, I'm just trying to brace myself a little bit. And he said, have you ever done acid? I said, no, never done acid. And he says, well, I think you should try it. All right, I'll bite. Why? Why do you want me to do this? And he said, well, whenever I take acid, whenever I trip on acid, um, I just feel so unified and connected with the rest of the universe. You know, it's, you know, maybe I see a tree and me and the tree start having a conversation or, you know, maybe the horizon gets blurred and the mountains become part of the sky and the sun and the stars come down to the earth and I just feel unified with the oneness of the universe. Now, I was not here at Redemption Parker last week. I was guest preaching at another church. So last night, just to kind of catch up, I was listening to the, Mark, or to the sermon that Mark preached last week. Um, and my sermon was already written. So I did not know that his sermon last week started with a friend of him asking him to like drink a bunch of beer and take a lot of shots. So especially if you are a guest, I just need you to know, was not planned, not that kind of church. Um, but uh, just when, whenever this friend, when he asked me, like, you know, do you want to do acid with me? I thought, I, I am not in Kansas anymore. Or I am not in Birmingham, Alabama anymore. This is a very different place than what I am used to. And so trying to, to think like a good missionary and a good evangelist and, and wanting to share the gospel with this unbelieving friend, it was just a a moment where I realized if I want to be faithful or effective in any kind of way, I am going to have to change my approach. See, back in Birmingham, cultural Christianity is the norm. And, you know, it wouldn't be uncommon for an unbeliever, you know, or even an atheist to say, yeah, I'll, I'll go to church with you. It's a Tuesday night. And like, I got nothing better to do. That's just where a bunch of my friends go. Sure. I'll go to church with you. And, you know, cultural Christianity, it creates a whole host of problems. But since moving to Colorado, one part of it that I've actually missed a little bit is that for the most part, people in the South know their Bible. You can use the terms faith and repentance and Jesus and sin and grace. And people at least have a, a somewhat basic understanding of what you're talking about. I think the baseline of biblical literacy is higher in, in a place like Birmingham than it is here. But then when I move to Colorado and I use those same words, sin, grace, faith, repentance, I just get blank stares. What are you talking about? And then when I explain, oh, well, you know, they're from God's word and, you know, they're from the Bible and the Bible is God's word to us. And not only do they not understand, they don't care. They don't view the Bible the same way that I do. I view it as the, 
inspired and authoritative and sufficient word of God, and they view it as a, yeah, it's a good book with helpful stories, and we might be able to learn a few things, but it's just one of many sources that they draw authority from. I just, I realized I have to change my tactics. I have to uh, preach the same gospel, but I have to do it in a different way, in a different place. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning as we continue in our study of the book of Acts. If you would, go ahead and open up with me to Acts 17. Acts 17, Acts is in the New Testament, uh, just past the gospel, so about five books in. Going to be in Acts 17, we're going to start in verse 10 and read through the end of the chapter. And just, as you're turning there, we're going to see Paul and Silas are doing ministry in two places, and these two places could not be any more different. Starting in Acts 17, verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned of the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching of Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art 
and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Lord, it is by your spirit that you have penned the words on these pages. We ask that you would be our guide and our interpreter. Would you lead us into all truth? Would you make Jesus big in our hearts and in our lives right now? We pray these things in his name. Amen. So as you can see, Paul was in two places in this chapter. He was in Berea and he was in Athens. And if I can speak broadly, Berea, at least for me, is kind of like Birmingham, and Athens is kind of like Colorado. All right? Broad stroke, I know, but you get the point. And so I don't want to spend a ton of time looking at um, how Paul did ministry in Berea, because I think Athens is more appropriate to our culture and can be more helpful, but there is something that I want us to notice about the Bereans, that there is something that I think we can learn from them. And we don't know a lot about Berea or the Bereans, but what we can tell just from this passage is that Berea is a place where the gospel has taken root. Jesus has been proclaimed there and people have come to faith and these are Bible people. They can speak the language, they know the storyline of the Bible, they know each book of the Bible. You can have a very mature, intellectual, sophisticated theological conversation with the Bereans. And there's something interesting in verses 10 and 11. We read that these Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And so we didn't read this. We skipped over the first section of chapter 17, but in those few verses, Paul and Silas were doing ministry in Thessalonica, and they preached the gospel, and Thessalonica did not respond very well. They formed a mob and started a riot and tried to murder Paul and Silas, and they ran them out of town. Now, I don't know about you, but at least for me, I consider people who have not tried to kill me more noble than people who have tried to kill me. So just on a very basic level, that's why the Bereans are more noble than the Thessalonians. They didn't try to kill them. But at the end of verse 11, I think we get a little more information that tells us why were these Bereans more noble than the Thessalonians. Verse 11, now these Jews were more noble. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So imagine this, Paul. Paul the apostle. Paul the apostle who wrote the majority of the New Testament. Paul, who just back in Acts 15, a few chapters ago, went toe-to-toe with the greatest religious thinkers of that day at the, at the Jerusalem Council and won Paul, who was a former Pharisee, who had the entire Old Testament law memorized, this Paul, who has the highest theological credentials in all the world, comes and preaches at your church, and what do the Bereans do? 
They fact check him. They don't just say, you're Paul, we trust and believe you. They examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They did not blindly follow any preacher or any leader. Saying that I hear sometimes, and I think it makes me sad more than anything, is when somebody says, well, pastor so-and-so said it, therefore it must be true. And I think it's good to have a general disposition of trust between you and your pastor. You should be able to think, more or less, I am getting what is true from God's word. But to say, pastor so-and-so said it, therefore it must be true. What that does is that raises the authority of man to the same level of authority as the word of God. And that is a very dangerous thing to do. I had a parent here from RP come up to me a few weeks ago after I had preached the week before. And they said that they were driving home after church and one of their kids piped up from the back seat. They said, I, I don't think I agreed with what Matthew said today. Am I allowed to do that? And the parents said, yeah, of course you're allowed. But if you do, just have the scripture to back it up. Be a good Berean. Test everything that you hear by the scriptures. Check it to see if what you are hearing is true. There's a really interesting moment in the first chapter of Galatians. Paul is writing to the entire church in Galatia. And he says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So Paul's saying, if we, if another apostle come and preaches a different gospel to you, doesn't matter if it's Paul or even one of the inner circle of James or Peter or John, if they preach a, a different gospel, let them be accursed. And he thinks, okay, well, What's a higher authority than an apostle? Okay, even if an angel, even if a heavenly being comes down and preaches a gospel different from the one that you have heard, let him be accursed. So, obviously, I am not an apostle, and I am definitely not an angel. Just a way too tall kid from a public school in Alabama. I'm nobody. I am not that impressive. So just because I have been to seminary, just because I am a pastor... That does not mean that you do not need to listen uh, in an engaged way or I would say critically, hopefully we could be constructive and kind in our criticism. But just don't just think, thank you, Mark. Don't just think that just because pastor so-and-so says it, therefore it must be true. This is our authority. Be a good Berean. Who did Paul address the letter of Galatians to? Did he address it to the senior pastor of the church in Galatia? Or to the elders? Or to the denomination? Or the seminary? Or the missions agency? No. He addressed it to the church. The entire church. The congregation. It is the church's job. It is the church member's job. It is the whole congregation's job to obey Paul's instruction to reject a false teacher because they have tested it against the word of God. You have a responsibility during the preaching moment every Sunday. All that you need 
to study God's word is a pencil, a willingness to work hard, and the spirit of God that will lead you into all truth. That is why the Bereans weren't more noble. They were well-read in their scriptures, and they were fluent in the gospel. They could, they could spot a false one. So we're going to see why that is so important and why that is such an invaluable resource, to know your Bible and to have gospel fluency, whatever context you're in. So Paul moves on from Berea, and he goes to Athens, moving further down in the passage, and Athens could not be any more different than Berea. Berea was backwoods. They were the country bumpkins. And then when you get to Athens, Athens is a culturally, intellectually, socially elite city. It's like if you combined Harvard and Hollywood and Wall Street all into one city. That is Athens. And along with being very intellectual and social and sophisticated, they were also very, very religious and polytheistic. So in verse 16, it says that Paul was provoked in his spirit because the city was full of idols. There's a saying back then that in Athens, it's easier to find an idol than it is to find a human. But these people were very, very religious, and they were so religious, they were actually afraid of not worshiping a God. They were afraid on missing one. They were afraid they were going to leave a God out. And so just to cover their bases, along with the thousands of gods that they worshiped, they even had a statue that says, to the unknown God. We don't want to leave anybody out and lose out on, on any favor that we might get. So we're, we're just going to worship a God that we don't even know. I mean, you can go to Athens to this day, and just everywhere you look, there's just ruin after ruin after ruin of these pantheons of temples that they made to worship thousands of gods. And so Paul, when he comes to this very, very different city than where he had just been, he, at first he follows his typical model of ministry. First he goes to the synagogue and he reasons with the Jews. But we also read that he was in the marketplace. He was having conversations with the philosophers of that day, the Epicureans and the Stoics. He even went to the Areopagus, or maybe you've heard it called Mars Hill. It's just a place where they would exchange ideas and philosophies. So Paul went to his new context, and he looked around, and he said, okay, I went to the synagogue. People aren't going to church. Therefore, I am going to go to them. And so he changed his geographic approach, but when we look at what he actually said, he also changed his content approach. See, back in, uh, you know, country bumpkin Berea, those people knew their Bibles. And so Paul was able to walk up and start a very fruitful conversation. He could have just said, you know, what, what do you think of this book? You know, let's, let's read through this passage, and you, you're familiar with it. What questions do you have about it? If he'd walked into Athens and started a question or started a conversation like that. And they just, he would have gotten blank stares like I do. They worshiped thousands of gods. And so if Paul would have asked, what do you think? They, they wouldn't care. So what is Paul going to do? How is he going to share the same gospel message in a very different cultural context? Pastor uh, in New York City, Tim Keller, uh, he has a really helpful evangelistic framework for how to share the gospel in a more secular uh, city, and he calls it the yes, but no 
but yes framework. And so just real quick, yes, but no, but yes. What that means is you want to start a conversation with a yes. You want to find something that is a common ground, a common understanding between you and the culture. And you're not going to agree with it 100%. It won't be gospel truth, but it, it can still be a fractured truth or a partial truth. And so you say yes to that truth. You build some common ground and understanding. And then you get to the but no. That's where you say this is what scripture actually says. This is what God says. This is what the gospel says is actually true. But no. But yes. And that's where you more or less join the first two and you show how the gospel takes that partial or fractured truth and it revolutionizes it, and it redeems it so that it's actually much better to believe the gospel. It's a yes, but no, but yes framework. That's been really helpful for me, so I think uh, it'd be helpful for us to just walk through the rest of that passage using that framework so it can help us as we try to share the gospel in our culture. And so read verses 22 and 23 with me. This is going to be Paul's first yes. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So Paul is looking around and he's seeing idolatry everywhere. He's provoked in his spirit, but he he doesn't jump straight into the gospel, no. He starts with a yes. He says, it's not right, but okay, you, uh, you feel like you are transcended. You feel like there is a power and an authority that is higher than you. That's why you have all of these idols. That's why you are through and through worshipers. Well, guess what? Me too. I also feel transcended. I also feel like there is a power and an authority that is higher than me. He worked very hard to find a common ground. And this first yes, this is really, really important. And the reason it's so important is because it sets the tone for the rest of the conversation. Beginning with a yes sets the tone, and it sets it as conversational and relational rather than just jumping into the confrontation and the argument. Verse 17 says that Paul was reasoning with these people every single day meaning that they didn't have a five-minute shouting match, just get red in the face and throw insults at each other and then walk away never to talk again. There was common understanding and mutual respect for one another. They disagreed in a helpful and understanding way. I, I think there are some things that the older generation can learn from younger people. But if there's one thing that I think my generation is really bad at and we can learn from a generation or so older than my own is how to disagree well. I don't really know why it is. Maybe it's just because we grew up online and we were just able to type things into a screen and didn't have to see how our words affected another person. Maybe it's because we're growing up in a cable news era where whoever yells loudest is considered the winner. I 
I don't know what it is, but I, I think generally people 35 and younger, we don't know how to disagree very well. And so I think Paul, in finding this first yes, and finding that mutual understanding, he is finding a common ground so that he can speak with kindness towards somebody that he disagreed with. Let's the other person know that you see them and respect them as human and not just as an embodiment of ideas that you disagree with. I love the verse. Mark spent a while preaching on this back in Acts 15. He said, we should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. And that includes our tone. We should not make it difficult for someone who's turning to God. And Paul is giving us a good example of how tone can remove can remove an unnecessary barrier in somebody coming to know the Lord. And so, yes, the gospel is offensive. And, and we're going to get there in a minute. We are going to see the offense, but we have to be very careful to make sure that it is the gospel, it is the gospel message, not the messenger that is being offensive. So Paul starts out with this first yes, he finds the common ground, then he moves to the but No. This is where he is going to show how the gospel contradicts what the Athenians are believing. So if you'd read verses 24 and 27 with me. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and their boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So we could spend an hour talking about all the contradictions that Paul is making here, but let's just do a, a brief summary of them. Paul's saying, you have many gods, you have thousands of gods, but there is one God. You have small gods, they're tribal and they're territorial, but we have uh, a big God. He rules over the entire universe. You make your statues, you make your gods, but it is actually God who makes you. You serve your gods. You work so hard to make sure that at the foot of your idol, there's food and flowers and money. You want to work to serve and to appease your God. And Paul says, it is actually God who upholds and sustains you. Jesus says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So just in a very nuanced way because he was so fluent in the gospel in just three verses Paul was able to show here's what the gospel actually says here's uh how, what, here's what is wrong with what you're believing and he he's kind of slowly uh building the offensive contradictions and tone and then he gets to the resurrection and to judgment it doesn't get any more offensive than the resurrection and judgment the resurrection, here are all your nice, pretty little gods. Well, our God became flesh and he died. And he didn't die peacefully in his sleep. His flesh was ripped apart. He was 
spat on, he was mocked, and he was hung on a cross naked for all the world to see. And this is our God. This is what we glory in. And not only that, this is the most shameful thing that you can understand during that time period, but this God is going to come and he is going to judge you. He, he just, he, he does not hold back on the gospel punches. He is not afraid to offend. And so we just talked about earlier how we do want to make sure that it is the message of the gospel, not the messenger that offends. And some of you needed to hear that. But there are also some of you who do need to hear that the gospel is offensive. The gospel does have teeth. Jesus does draw a line in the sand. And, and I know that we live in a very secular and pluralistic and postmodern world where to say that you actually believe in an objective truth, that that is the most arrogant thing you can do in the 21st century. But there comes a point where you have to say, I do believe that this is God's word and that what he says is true. About a year ago, I was seeing a guy for counseling and um, he was counseling me and I don't know if he was a Christian, if he was a believer, just that, that time and place, that setting really wasn't the goal of our time. But uh, at one point he said to me, you know, Matthew, you just need to believe and claim for yourself that the things you're struggling with and that you're suffering through, that you're going to beat them and that you're going to leave them behind and that you are never going to suffer again because God loves you and he wants to bless you. I said, you know, brother, I, I know that you love me and I know that you want what's, what is best for me, but I can't say that. I don't believe that. If there's one thing that God has promised us in this life, it is suffering. And so it's just a moment where I was as theologically and as culturally flexible as I could be while still keeping a clear conscience, but at some point I had to trust what the gospel actually says and trust that it is offensive and trust that it is actually good and right for us to embrace all of God's word. I think some of us need to hear that Jesus is offensive. There's also another interesting little nugget that Paul does here as he is preaching the offense of the gospel. As he is giving his gospel presentation, he also uses cultural references to support his argument. Notice in verse 28, to support his gospel proclamation, Paul said, even some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. So that poet was a guy named uh, Eratus, and he was writing about the god Zeus. And so Paul was able to say, you've got the right idea, you just got the wrong god. Yes, we are all indeed God's offspring, you just have the wrong god. It's actually Yahweh. And so Paul, along with knowing his Bible, he knew his culture. He was able to quote their own authorities. He knew what books and songs and movies they were watching, and he was able to quote them and use them in a way that points to the gospel. Now, I, I don't believe, and I don't think Paul would believe that you must be culturally, culturally literate in order to share the gospel. I mean, Paul did write in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. 
But cultural references can just be another connecting point that can help point people to Jesus. When I was in seminary in Birmingham, there was a, taking a summer Hebrew class, and one of my classmates who wasn't from the South, he walked in and he sat down and he said, Bowerman, do I have to know college football if I want to be a good pastor here? I said, well, Dustin, you don't have to, but it'll really help. You don't have to, but if you can talk about, you know, who's on the, the, the too deep depth, depth chart, that is going to give you so much social and cultural equity. You are going to be able to build relationships with these people faster because you can speak the same language. You know what they value. And so along with studying Hebrew that summer, he would also watch these like uh, football for dummy videos on YouTube. And I would quiz them every single day. All right, who are Alabama's rivals? Who's our quarterback? Like, what's an offsides penalty? And, and it sounds really, really silly. But what Dustin was doing is he was doing his best to learn the culture. He was doing his best to learn how to speak the common language, to contextualize. If I can put it bluntly, he was learning football for the sake of the gospel. Really? Not an amen in Bronco country? You can't learn football? Man, I was, I was hoping for one on that one. Okay. So, Paul gives his first yes, then the but no, and then he moves into the final yes, the second yes, where he joins the two and shows how the gospel revolutionizes and redeems the partial truth that they were believing. I think we see it in verse 17. I'm sorry, 27. Verse 27. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. So Paul is watching these people worship, and he says, your worship is sincere, but it's misguided. It's, it's as if by your sin, you have a blindfold on, or even worse, you're not wearing a blindfold, but you actually are blind. And you sense that there is a God. You sense that you're transcended. You sense that there is a higher authority, but you can't see or find him, so you're just, you're reaching everywhere. You're reaching in all directions, desperately trying to find the God that you sense exists. What Paul's saying is, yes, there is a God, but you don't have to reach desperately. You don't have to reach out so far and so wide and so high and so low because he is actually much nearer than you think. For in him we live and move and have our being. Now what Paul is not saying is he is not endorsing some sort of pantheism which says that I am God and you are God and that tree is God and the mountain is God and that all together we, make, we combine to make up God. What he is saying is when he says that in him we live and move and have our being, he means that in a Psalm 139 kind of way. Again, didn't plan to have Psalm 139 read <coughs> during our, our singing, but it, it just worked out that way. I guess the Lord was doing a similar work in us this week. Psalm 139 says that you formed me, my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. 
I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are you works. My soul knows it well. My frame is not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. And so just like Paul said when he was leading us earlier, Psalm 139 is not ultimately about how awesome we are because of how beautifully and wonderfully made we are. Our beauty and our wonder and our intricacy that we see in ourselves and we see in the people around us, that is meant to point us to something higher than ourselves. We are meant to see the image of God in every single person. So I am not God and you are not God, but there is a stamp of divinity in you. And all of your longings and hopes and desires are meant to point you to the one who made you. So Paul's saying, your God is not far off. Stop your desperate grasping. Stop your desperate reaching. Look to the one in whose image you are made. You can get hints of him just in yourself and in the people around you. And his name is Jesus. He is God made flesh. In him, the fullness of God dwells bodily. He is the perfect imprint, the exact imprint of all of God's character. If you want to have your hopes and your longings and your desires filled, then look to Jesus. You don't have to look far off. You don't have to do all of these hard works because he, be, he became like you and he came to you. Look to Jesus. And so I'll close by asking you this. What are you looking for? What do you want? What is your deepest desire? What drives you and motivates you week in and week out? As an outsider moving to Colorado, it is clear that recreation is clearly one of the thousands of idols that we worship here. I think people live for the weekend, and I get it, to go be in the mountains and to hike and to bike and to ski. And I think it's because they sense that there is a God. God has revealed himself in nature. And so when people are standing next to a towering mountain, they get a sense that, oh, there's a bigger meaning and purpose in the world. But look to the God who made that mountain. He is so much bigger. We live in suburbia. Maybe you want comfort and ease and financial security. Again, not a bad thing. You know how much of that you take with you when you die? Not a dime. Not a single dime. If you want ultimate security, if you want ultimate comfort, find it in Jesus. If you want meaning and impact, if you want significance in your life, if you want something to last beyond you, if you want to do something of eternal significance and importance, don't put your hope in worldly things that are going to pass away. Invest it in the kingdom. All of our culture's desires in and of themselves can be good things, but when those good things become God things, they break you. So look to Jesus. Be fulfilled and satisfied in him. Towards that end, let me pray for us. Lord, we are in awe and humbled and 
grateful for who you are and what you have done. And taking on flesh and coming to us and being near us and making us, God, you are, you're simply wonderful. And so we praise you and we thank you for who you are. I ask that by your spirit you would transform us more into the image of Jesus. Would you make him big and beautiful in our eyes? I pray that for the unbelievers here that you would show them the half-truth that they are believing that, and show them that Jesus is so much better. Lord, would you call people to yourself today? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.